Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in Science Fiction. I'm Rob Wolf, and I'm very happy to bring you the Cats Are People Too episode. Today we're going to be talking about a book that illuminates, among other things, the importance of careful planning. And I'm not talking about planning for a trip or planning a wedding, but more like a planet-wide form of urban planning where careful and equitable balancing of people's needs the environment's needs, aesthetics, costs, and all those things can produce a community that works for everyone for years, and I mean many years in the future. My guest today is Annalee Newitz, who is here to talk about their forthcoming book, The Terraformers. Annalee Newitz writes science fiction and nonfiction. They are the author of Four Lost Cities, A Secret History of the Urban Age, and Scatter, Adapt, and Remember How Humans Will Survive a Mass Extinction, which was a finalist for the LA Times Book Prize in Science. They're also the author of the novels The Future of Another Timeline and Autonomous, which won the Lambda Literary Award. As a journalist, they are a writer for the New York Times and elsewhere and have a monthly column in New Scientist. They are also the co-host of the Hugo Award-winning podcast, Our Opinions Are Correct?, Previously, they were the founder of io9 and served as the editor-in-chief of Gizmodo. Annalie joins me now from their home in San Francisco. Welcome back to the podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me back. It's always a pleasure. Well, it's wonderful to have you back because there's always wonderful and interesting things to talk about. Today is uh, The Terraformers, which is it's such a great book to start the podcasting year, I think because it's ultimately an optimistic book about the positive directions a society can move when everyone works together in a collaborative, equitable, and democratic way. What made you want to write this story, The Terraformers? You know, I had been noodling for a long time on thinking about a story where a lot of the characters were non-human animals. I've always loved stories about that. I grew up reading Beatrix Potter and watching Lassie's Rescue Rangers. And I still, when I'm feeling sad or scared, I sometimes think about Lassie's Rescue Rangers. And I'm like, they'll save us. And so I, I had that in the back of my mind. And then, you know, I just finally felt like 
now was the time to do it. The, the pandemic was really tough and the political situation in the United States was really unstable. And I feel like in dark times in reality, it's really important to write stories that show a pathway out, not like a candy coated utopia, like, you know, la la la, everything could be better. But like, look, things are hard, but like there are ways to get out of it. And there's many ways, there's many pathways out. And so with a big sprawling multi-generational book, it's a place to show all of those pathways, or at least a, a fraction of those pathways, and not suggest that there's only one solution. Well, I thought it would be a fun way to get listeners to get a feel for the book if you tell us about the two characters we meet at the book start, Destry Thomas and Whistle. So who are they and what's their relationship? So Destry Thomas is a network analyst from a group called the Environmental Rescue Team. And 60,000 years in our future, this group, the Environmental Rescue Team, has become an interplanetary force for first responders and environmental engineers who work together to keep environments in balance, to keep ecosystems in balance, but also to stage rescue operations when people are suffering from disasters, whether those disasters are political or natural disasters. And we see an example of both of those in the book. So Destry is uh, living on a planet called Saski, and her job is to just maintain the ecosystems to keep them nice and pristine and working fine until the company that owns the planet sells it all off as real estate. And she is joined by her trusty steed, the moose named Whistle. And it's 60,000 years in the future, people. So I'm like, of course, Whistle can talk and fly. Just go with it, okay? And Whistle actually is a perfect replica of a moose from Earth's Pleistocene. So he can't talk with his mouth. It's not like a cartoon where his lips flap. He has an implant in his head that can send texts. So he and Destry are always texting each other. So he can actually make a moose noise and talk at the same time, which is kind of a fun uh, thing to imagine. And um, and how, why can he fly? Because gravity mesh, obviously. <laughs> We're going to have a thing called gravity mesh that we can implant into living beings and make them fly. So that that was that is the I would say the one point of complete fantasy in this book. I can't imagine how gravity mesh would work, but let's just say it does. Well, it's funny cuz that that was the thing that got me. I, you know, I'm reading, okay, there's a sentient moose communicating with Destry, they're buddies, they communicate by text. You know, Destry also has sensors embedded in her so she can actually communicate not just with whistle, but with the environment, the soil. But the thing that really surprised me the most is when Destry gets on Moose and then they leap into the air and they just keep going up, up, up. And I was like, wait, wait, I, where are the wings? Were there wings? And then I realized, oh, no. And then you refer to the gravity mesh. And, you know, it's not just whistle. There's all sorts of things that could just pop up into the air. Yeah. There's a lot of people who can fly and robots and, of course, vehicles and things like that. So, uh, like I said, it really was... I just permitted myself that one piece of fantasy because I just, again, I, every time I thought about the physics of it, I was like, and where would all the energy be going? Ah, let's not worry about it. <laughs> they can do all kinds of crazy stuff in the future. <laughs> exactly. Once you say 60,000 years, it's all bets are off. You can do whatever you want. Yeah. 
so listeners don't get the impression that this is all just, you know, happy fantasy. We already are introduced through Whistle to a kind of inequity, although we don't fully understand it, I think, at first. But Whistle can communicate by text, but there are limits to how Whistle, what Whistle can say. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that, because in Larange, the city where they are based that's owned by this company, Verdance, that owns the planet, they have certain ratings, certain people. And I want to talk about that. Everyone, everyone is a person. Whistle is a person. Dustry is a person. But some people have limits on how they can communicate, and, and they actually have ratings. You know, it feels like a caste system. So could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it is a caste system. And this is a future where all of the beings that we meet are fabricated. So they've been genetically engineered, they've been grown in tanks. When they are decanted, which is what they say for being born, they're basically adults. And they they kind of are brought up to speed, but they are born with certain kinds of intelligence built in. And I use the term intelligence very guardedly, because the caste system is one of intelligence. They have what are called intelligence assessment ratings, which are something that's actually regulate, regulated by an interstellar interplanetary agency. And not every community that we meet uses them, but they are, but anyone is permitted to use them. And basically what happens is that when certain creatures are being built, they're built with limiters in their brains. And what that means is not that they are actually less intelligent, but simply that they can't express themselves in ways that makes them make them sound intelligent. So in the case of uh, Whistle, this was actually really fun for me to, to write, but Whistle is only able to write in monosyllabic words. So he winds up sounding like a child because he's just, even though in his head he has all of these multisyllabic words, but he's just not permitted to text them. And so he's classified with these intelligence assessment ratings as what's called a mount. And uh, if you will permit me a, an odd digression, the reason I chose to call him a mount and the reason why I have so much fury in this book around the idea of mounts and how they're rated is because I had been playing a Dungeons and Dragons game where my character was an Aarakocra, which is a flying, it's like a bird person. And Aarakocras in previous editions of D&D were classed as mounts. And that meant that they could not be, they were not playable characters, but you could ride them. And then they became playable characters. And once they were playable characters, you couldn't ride them anymore, which seems kind of weird. But my character was really pissed off about how their people had been treated as mounts. And I really got into it. And then I was like, I'm going to put this character, you know, as, as sort of a that character into this novel. I think the designers of D&D should be ashamed of themselves. But also the people in the world that I've built should be ashamed of themselves because as the many of the characters refer to these ratings as in-ass ratings, because um, you have to have your head in your ass to buy into intelligence assessment. And we meet a lot of other characters who have other kinds of intelligence assessment ratings, and they've been limited in other ways and what they can express. And I think it's a very socially realistic idea that if people could do something like this, they would, because there's a real obsession among humans on Earth right now with this idea that you can measure intelligence 
and that we can allocate jobs based on it, that we can make determinations about people's future based on it, even though at the same time, as we start to build artificial intelligence, we're starting to realize that we have no freaking clue what intelligence is, that there's a million kinds of intelligence. There's almost no way to measure it. It's, it's just this kind of ineffable thing. It's like love. You can't measure love either, but we talk about it all the time like you can. So it was, it was something that has really preoccupied me a lot, and I really go pretty deep on it in this book, dealing with prejudices around what intelligence is and how people are kind of imprisoned by um, the way that they're treated based on how intelligent they seem. What's fascinating is that Destry hasn't really thought about what the limiter does, and it's a revelation to her when she realizes that Whistle has always had more complex thoughts, but just been unable to express them. And that really underscores, of course, it's very writerly to underscore the importance of language, but how we might judge someone on that basis in that that very particular form of communication, when, as you say, there are so many other ways to have intelligence, express intelligence, understand the world, experience the world. Yeah, yeah. And I wanted to take readers on that journey with Destry and have us watch her figuring out what's really been going on and realize that she kind of always guessed that Whistle was just as intelligent as she was or just as perceptive as she was, perhaps. But she didn't understand that he, how he had sort of been mentally abused in this way. So... Um, so Whistle's journey is a big part of the book, and what happens to him is very important. You work as a science journalist, and I think that clearly complements your your fiction. And that really hit home for me as I was reading this book, because I had heard earlier this year the episode you did on On the Media in January with Brooke Gladstone. You were co-hosts together. Yeah. And on that episode... You explored attitudes towards Neanderthals. I know that's that's considered, I don't know if that's the proper way to say it. That's certainly one way to say it. And you looked at how the evidence didn't line up along the, these lines here, you know, with what, you know, our, our obsession, Homo sapiens obsession. Of course, amongst ourselves, we're rating each other. But then when we look at other species, we rate other species. Of course, they're all inferior to us, including the Neanderthals. <laughs> Who... Yeah, rate my species. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So so the whole episode explored this idea that that non-homo sapiens, like Neanderthals, like all animals that we're familiar with, they need a rethink. And and that really permeates the the feeling, um, the culture of the terraformers. So I guess I mean we've kind of already talked about that, but just this idea that by calling everyone people or considering everyone people you know, it changes how you how you think of them. And just for listeners, again, you know, in the book, cats are people and naked mole rats are people. And of course, we've already gone over moose are people and earthworms are people. A door can even be a person. <laughs> so I, I guess maybe there's I, I feel like there's more maybe we could you could say about that idea. Yeah, I mean, I wanted people to think about the environment the way we think about each other. And when I say each other, I mean, when we think about our, our communities of people who we care about. And one of the big issues, I think, around getting people into a frame of mind where we're going to deal with climate change by changing our relationship to the environment, changing our relationship to energy use and things like that, 
is that in the West, you know, the European culture of the West, we've really been taught to see humans as us and everything else as them. And I mean, and, and of course, within uh, within humans, we also have a lot of us and them too. But just just for the moment, let's think about the environment. And so I really wanted to kind of suggest a pathway out of that. And I think this almost fairy tale approach to imbuing everything in the environment with life was my way of getting people to think, oh, wait, the tree has life, the train has life. The um, the naked mole rat has life. All of us have life because we all have a role to play in the ecosystem around us. So that was a big part of what I was trying to do. And and really, other than the gravity mesh, I really did try to have a very grounded, scientifically accurate approach to thinking about ecosystems. For example, when Destry, my network analyst, connects to the environment, she has these sensors in her hands she's reading a vast sensor network that's sort of all over the planet. There's these tiny microscopic biodegradable sensors that, that the environmental rescue team has scattered everywhere so that they can read the health of the trees, of the soil, of the insects, of everything. And so it gives Destry this almost magical connection to the planet, kind of avatar style, except it's not some hokey tree of life thing. It's actually, no, it's just a sensor network, uh, much like sensor networks that we're developing now on Earth and using in a lot of places. So that was kind of what I was thinking about. And the history, which you referred to, I guess, sort of obliquely, I mean, it's the backstory somewhere. I mean, it could be its own book, I think, but there are references to the farm revolutions and the great bargain. My sense of it was, and you don't go, you, you treat it appropriately as like such ancient history that it's just referred to casually and not in great detail. But I would be interested in hearing what story you told yourself about what, what those things were, what happened, and what is the great bargain. Yeah, so you're right that it is, it's such deep backstory that the characters kind of take it for granted in the same way that, you know, human beings now take for granted that we cook. You know, we cook food. But, you know, 60,000 years ago, people were not necessarily cooking food. Um, well, maybe not 60,000 years ago, but like a million years ago, our ancestors were just starting to tame fire, which meant they got to start cooking food. So somebody had that idea and then it became just totally normalized. So I wanted them to be thinking about us as ancient history. And the farm revolutions are, I did think about all of this stuff a lot and I did create a timeline. And what I was imagining is that sometime in our future, maybe two, three, 400 years in our future, there's incredible environmental adversity. We've had sea level rise, crop failures, fires, pandemics, all the stuff that comes with um, habitat perturbation and that we're already seeing now. And there's a population crash, but the people who are best equipped to deal with it are People in northerly areas, like, say, in Saskatchewan um, or in northern Canada. And it's a lot of people who are already involved in environmental projects. Like, they're either involved in environmental activism or they're scientists who've been studying how to grow crops that are going to be sustainable in a new kind of ecosystem, right, in a changing world. And... A few of those individuals who do, we do hear a little bit about them in the book, uh, a few of those individuals 
kind of lead a movement, which becomes the farm revolutions. And it's kind of a futuristic green revolution. You know, it's just a new approach to genetic engineering, which allows us to survive in a climate unstable world. And part of what happens at that point, again, as in my imaginary history, is that the people who are leading this farm revolution realize that part of the problem has been that we've been trying to shepherd ecosystems without asking other creatures in the ecosystem what they think about it. And at that point, they have the technology to build non-human animals with human equivalent consciousness. And they start to do it and they call it the great bargain because it's a bargain between homo sapiens and all of the other life forms around them. And so they start with farm animals and other animals that are in their environment. So cows and moose, cats, and start asking them, what do you think? What, how should we rebuild? How should we make this civilization happen? And, uh, this is a, a world where they already have robots that have sentience. So humans have already accepted that there's non-human intelligence, but they haven't quite accepted that there could be other life forms, like not life forms that we didn't actually invent um, in a in a machine shop. So that great bargain and that idea of joining with non-human life forms in a revolution to change how we farm, how we do agriculture that kind of leads to the environmental rescue team. And they become kind of a, they're a scientific order. They're also kind of spiritual. They um, spread out across the galaxy on different planets and kind of set up little campuses where they work and they don't affiliate with governments. They don't affiliate with corporations. They try to spread the credo of living in balance and, um, and spread the ideals of the great bargain. And, you know, there's lots of weird byways in this. For example, I was saying like, well, humans hadn't accepted that non-human animals could be just like us, could be people. But of course, at the same time, the way that they end up talking to cows is by building cows uh, that are that have human uh, perception and can, can, and can communicate with us. So it's further transformations of nature in a sense. So there's, there's definitely, it's not perfect. It's hard to know, like, what would a, a, a Pleistocene original cow really think? We aren't able to know that. And so anyway, you could, you could kind of go really far down the sort of philosophical rabbit hole with this. And some of the characters definitely do, which, you know, that, yeah, that could be a whole other story. <laughs> but by the time my characters are coming around, you know, the environmental rescue team is just natural to them. The great bargain is natural. People talk about it as just a kind of um, a philosophical way of life. It's more like Buddhism than it is like Christianity. It's kind of a way of living. And certain characters really buy into it and other characters don't really care about it, just like any other kind of spiritual path. And they have their own new problems. You know, this, the farm revolutions and the great bargain solved the problems of the Anthropocene. And they do talk about the Anthropocene as being oh, that thing that happened in the past. Gosh, that was a that was a time. And uh, but now now there's they're facing brand new systems of oppression and colonization. So the uh, the fight goes on. It's interesting as you talk about the 
installation of human intelligence, say, or modeled on human intelligence in other species, and then asking those species what they what they think. So, you know, the, it, on the other hand, there are cases in the terraformers where the hominids, or no, the people, that's not just, it's people, uh, mm-hmm. I think it was the naked mole rats, maybe, who decide to bring earthworms into the great bargain because although they may have this kind of intelligence that I suppose was originally framed around human intelligence, they also bring their own knowledge based on some quality that is earthwormness that allows them to solve a problem that the naked mole rats can't solve. So it's interesting just to see how it isn't entirely human. It's it's emerging. You know, each each yeah. species is bringing something unique to the conversation. Yeah, they're bringing their own perspective. And the way I, I think about it and the way the characters think about it is not so much like we're turning cow we're turning cows into like humans in a cow suit. It's much more the idea of the great bargain is we bring them into conversation with us. We we create a way for humans to hear what they want. And the fact is, as we discover over and over and over again, when non-human animals are given the ability to communicate, they often do not want what humans want. They often argue and push back and revolt So and get really pissed off. So it's not a way of creating just a bunch of little humans. But on the other hand, it's, you know, they are changing the nature of these animals. Let's talk about something that runs through all the parts of the book. As you say, it's multi-generational. It, the story takes place over thousands of years, really. One thing that recurs in each major section of the book is love. And you referenced that before. And, you know, there are moose falling in love with moose. You know, okay, I easy to imagine, right? There's an archaean, which is a form of homonym. And there's an archaean falling in love with a homo sapien. Okay, got that. Uh, And then there is a cat falling in love with a flying train. So it's a little harder to to fathom, at least if you you hear it. I'm sure listeners are like, what? But you make it believable. You make the story, you make it believable because they're real characters. And why wouldn't they fall in love or fall, you know, into a, a deep and committed relationship? So I was wondering if there was something, you know, you had in mind, something you hope readers take from these stories of, these loving relationships among people who, at least externally, are very different. I mean, yeah. Again, I think it's about how do we empathize with our environment? And the environment doesn't just include plants and animals and human. It's, you know, the environment is everything. And I wanted to model what it looks like for creatures who are not the same species or not the same type of built creature to love each other because they have common cause or because they both like video games. In one case, the cat and the, and the train just love video games. And, um, I mean, they're very futuristic, immersive video games. They're not playing pong. Um, although maybe they are, I don't know. You know, it's the same thing with the Archaean, who's kind of a a type of hominin, like you said, and their relationship with those homo sapiens. And it's really if to go back to Neanderthals, which you mentioned earlier, one of the big shifts in our understanding of Neanderthals came about, I want to say about 
15 years ago when the DNA from a Neanderthal finger bone was sequenced at the Max Planck Institute. And what it revealed was that Homo sapiens and Neanderthals had been having children together the whole time. Okay. It wasn't just like once. And a lot of us have a little bit of DNA from Neanderthal ancestors. And I'm sure that's true of other archaic humans, early humans as well. All of these different humans were falling in love or at least having sex and reproducing. And I wanted to evoke that and point out that in order for us to live in balance, that we do have to extend love in places that we might not expect. A lot of this book is about having uprisings against systemic oppression. In this case, it's capitalism because they're dealing with a, a very greedy, a couple of very greedy corporations, real estate corporations. And I really believe that if we're going to fight something that is systemic, it has to be sustained by love and community. And of course, the smallest unit of community really is love. And, you know, that doesn't mean you have to like love everyone in your community. That would be sometimes just untenable. <laughs> but we but we do have to be bound together by that kind of feeling. And so I wanted, especially the cat and the train to fall in love because the train is part of a public transit system. And I just, I really love public transit. And I have a lot of tender feelings toward the trains in San Francisco and, and actually trains in other towns too. The the train in, in Terraformers is actually based on um, the trains in Melbourne, Australia. And I, I just wanted people to have a way of thinking about these different entities, these different stakeholders emotionally, instead of thinking that it was just purely political. I, I'm, I feel like I'm not expressing that well, but really, it's just about the feels. It's about the big feelings. <laughs> no, I, I think you've captured that well. And it, it relates to another thought I had based on you're talking about the cat and the train's love of uh, games, video games, because at one point, they go into a, a bar or, um, you know, an establishment where people get to beta test games and someone, I think it was a bot, I'm not sure, mm -hmm. who has a game that they're very excited about sharing and want tested. And it's based on the, I think it's on the farm revolutions. But yeah. but their idea was, no, 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 we're not going to just turn the legendary people who, people who participate in that into, we're not going to exaggerate them. We're going to do literally what happened. And what happens as your book makes clear, because your book takes place over thousands of years, it's that building complex things, making revolutions, making new societies, making planets takes time. And so the game ends up being very boring. And yeah. I was going to say, but your your story is also about making big things, making planets, making new societies, but it's not boring. And I think that's why it's not boring, because you bring you emphasize the the character, the you know, the love and the connection. And so you're telling stories about the individuals within these larger landscapes. And yet you you don't shy away. I mean, many of their conversations are nitty gritty conversations about, well, if we do this, the river will go here. And, and well, what are the pros and cons? And so, I mean, beyond 
putting some love and sex in the story and bring bring the characters forward i mean are there other strategies you did to to really tell such an interesting story about these slow evolving events i mean i think one of the wonderful things about fiction is that you can actually tell a story that takes place over a thousand years in like a hundred thousand words um or a little give or take a little bit and so i mean i made liberal use of skipping through time you know we we skip over a thousand years between each section, I believe. And of course, these are also characters who, like a lot of characters in post-human science fiction, they all have very extended lifespans. So they're living for a thousand years or 5,000 years, depending on how many upgrades they have access to, how much money they have. So that's one way, is just to be able to like zoom in and zoom out. And and there are some scenes in the in the book where characters actually say like, this is really boring. <laughs> they're having like a a, a council meeting at one point that just goes on and on. And the cat character is just like, oh, I really, government is boring. Like I want to have a government, but I don't want to, I don't want to sit through a government meeting, which I think is how a lot of us feel. And I think if we have good government, like not everyone should have to sit through the meeting, but someone should take notes and someone should be there. So that's part of it. And I think part of it too, is that you know, in that scene with the bot who's trying to build the very accurate game about the farm revolutions, that bot is trying to retell a story where the heroes of the farm revolution come like roaring out of the sky on like serpents and they're like, they have flamethrowers and like dragons and they like beat the evil capitalists and they, you know, they, they rescue the world, you know, they, they draw the continents back up out of the water. And, and I mean, I have my characters do a little bit of that. Like I said, you know, they fly and they do get to fight in very heroic battles. There's like a volcano war, again, very realistically described. I actually consulted with a geologist who studies rivers about how you would build a dam out of lava. And uh, that was very helpful. So it it is very dramatic in the book, but it's also realistic. But the flying is not realistic. So there are characters who do come flying in out of the sky like mythological characters. And I think, you know, every great revolutionary story needs at least one moment of just that feeling of when your heart just explodes in your chest, when like the heroes come and you know that the day is going to be saved we just need that feeling because without it, the story becomes, it becomes a bit grindy and it becomes more like realist fiction, which I love realism. And there is a lot of realism in here, but come on, I'm doing sci-fi. I want to have my flying out of the sky moment. <laughs> so there is that. You you balance it well. There's you know, the action and the sort of thoughtful, wonky planning moments uh geoengineering or planet engineering i hope so <laughs> there is there is a lot of wonky discussion of rivers yeah <laughs> well one thing i feel like we could use now and i i don't know how one ever gets it because it seems so antithetical to the way humans think is that your characters are thinking not just you know about next year they're not thinking about a hundred years they're thinking thousands of years into the future and they're they're taking actions based on that awareness and obviously that's something we don't do today and we have such a hard time doing and why climate change why we're screwing ourselves with that and all kinds of things you know it feels like if only we could do what what, what was happening in the in the terraformers we'd be um well we, we could set ourselves on a decent path 
I mean, we are setting ourselves on a path. That's that's the thing is I feel like even if you decide, okay, we're not going to do anything about burning fossil fuels or engaging in, you know, really damaging farm practices, you know, factory farming and that sort of thing, you're still looking into the future and saying, I just don't give a crap what happens. Like, I know that this is going to blow up in our faces and I just don't care. And in, in a sense, that is also planning for the future. It's just planning to screw over the future. And interestingly, a lot of the people who make those kinds of plans screw people over in the present too. Those are the same people who are screwing over workers in Amazon warehouses and farm workers who are, you know, asked to work in punishing heat without unionization, without any limits on their hours. And so, yeah, no surprise that their future plans are basically like, you know, the boot on your nuts forever. <laughs> or if you have nuts, the boot on whatever part of your body you would like to protect forever. So I think, you know, we have to start realizing that it's not a matter of learning to plan for the future. It's just learning to plan for a future that we feel tenderly about and about thinking about how we want to treat people in the future. And, you know, there's many cultures on earth that do incorporate ideas of planning for future generations and respecting future generations. And I think, unfortunately, right now, we're all, especially in kind of capitalist Western countries, we're really slotted into this one vision of the future where, and the vision is, we eat everything, we consume everything until it's gone. And then, well, they'll just eat something else or who cares? Like those people will just, maybe they'll just die. I don't care um, because I got my food that I ate and I ate all the metal on the planet. So I think if we can start in the present treating our communities better and treating them more respectfully, it'll become easier and easier to think about the future as a community that we treat respectfully too. Words to live by. <laughs> Words to hope by. Words to hope by, Yes. <laughs> Well, thank you so much. This has really been absolutely fascinating and so fun. A great, fun book to read. I urge everyone to, to pick up The Terraformers, and that will be out at the end of January. It's from Tor Books. Thank you. Thanks for coming on, coming back on the show. Your, your two previous books you were on to discuss, so three for three. Yeah, well, I always, I always love talking with you. I always ask the best questions, and you're such a thoughtful reader. So thank you so much for having me back. Well, thank you. Thank you. My pleasure. I've been talking uh, to Annalie Newitz, and I am Rob Wolf, your host for this episode of New Books and Science Fiction. Marshall Poe is the editor and founder of the New Books Network, and Leanne Wilson is co-editor. Our theme music is by Michael Aaron of QuiverNYC.com. Please subscribe to the show. You know, please give us a good review if you're in the mood. It's such a nice thing to do. I'll be back next time with my co-host, Brenda Nuezer. A happy New Year, everyone, and happy reading.